Thank you, Hubert. And good morning again, everyone. If you are part of King's Kids, you can journey back to the King's Kids place. And um, if you would like Spanish translation, I'm not sure if the number is on the screen, but if not, there's a there's a paper back there. Okay, it's on. Good, got the thumbs up. And I'm I'm just loving going through Hebrews probably just as much as all of you are, especially these past few weeks where it just seems like we've just been hanging around talking about blood. <laughs> especially last week, my, one of my friends I, I heard through the grapevine, I won't mention any names, he says, wow, if that was the Mother's Day sermon, can't wait for Father's Day. It's all about blood. And it was about the blood of the, on the mercy seat, the most important blood, the most valuable blood, but the most highly symbolic picture of the love that God has for us, the blood, the very blood of his son that covers our sins. And that's where we're at now, the new covenant. And so our writer of Hebrews has been doing his very best. He's been just literally turning himself inside out over the past few chapters, really, the whole book, to warn and exhort these people to know Jesus, encounter Jesus, the law and the old system. I know you love it, and I know you're used to it, and I know that's all you know, but if you really look in the scriptures, you're going to see that that whole Old Testament system is pointing to this man right here, Jesus Christ. And so God promised that he would send Jesus. He promised not only that, he promised that the old covenant would then continue into a new covenant where the law is written on our hearts and minds. And get this, God is actually going to cause us to walk in his statues. Isn't that amazing? What better guarantee can we have? Hey, I'm going to hire you for the job, and then I'm going to do all the work for you. Is it quite that simple? Well, we like to think of it that way. I could say it's like that, but it doesn't feel that way, does it? No. You see, God's doing the work not for us, but through us, in us, using us, working alongside of us. And so the new covenant is all about that. So he's going into this for a long, like, big old chunk here. So we have chapter 8, verse 7, that goes through chapter 10, verse 18. Now, we're not covering all that today. But that chunk is all about the new covenant. And so today we're going to be in verse 23 of chapter 9. And this is sort of summing up what was said but then he gives us even a bigger picture of his summary towards the end of this passage. So I'm going to read from Hebrews chapter 9, verse 23, down through verse 28. Therefore, it was necessary for the copies of things in the heavens to be cleansed with these things. Excuse me. But the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. Now that therefore is therefore because of the verse before that says without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sins. That's not on your screen. But because there's without the, everything needs to be cleansed with blood. Everything of the law was cleansed with blood. 
was either sprinkled with blood or, or, or somehow cleansed with it, in, excuse me, one way or the other. But then the high principle of our, of our Lord is that without shedding of blood, because the life is in the blood, there is no forgiveness. Because, and when you violate God's law, when you violate his holiness, then what you're actually doing is separating yourself from him. Okay, so the only way that that separation can be rectified is through death, because sin, death, wages of sin is death. And so God puts the life in the blood, sends his son as a human, fully God, fully man, to spill his eternal blood, his blood that is full of more life than we could ever imagine, and that covers our sins and gives us complete forgiveness. So much so that the new covenant is actually referred to a law as referred to as a lawless covenant, even though we know it's not. It's lawless because the Old Testament law has already been fulfilled. And where there's no law, there's no sin. And what that means for you is you can't be charged with sin by God because of Jesus. And he can, he will work in you through your sin. He will discipline you in your sin because he loves you. And it's a lovingly thing. You know, he'll work it with you. He's working in you, but he will not negotiate with it. Okay? He's not not allowing it. God uses it. So these things had to be cleansed with blood because of the life. So go to, you know, verse 24. It says, for Christ, now he's going, did not enter a holy place made with hands. He's talking about heaven. The place with hands is a mere copy of the true one. But Christ into heaven, he went himself or itself now to appear in the presence of God for us. Nor was it that he would offer himself often as the high priest enters the holy place year by year with blood that is not his own. So I want to stop here for a second. Okay, so the mere copy, just in case you're, you're, you're losing there. Okay, the mere copy, if he's talking about that there is a real place, not in this dimension. Okay, it's not in outer, it's not in outer space. There's a veil, like the veil of the temple, that separates the spiritual, the heavenly realm, and the physical. You got that? So there's this split, okay? Now, once that split goes away, then we're going to see that heaven and earth are going to come together and all of those things. But when you get into that side, you will be in the spiritual realm. But God is in his throne room, in his temple, in his real holy of holies in the heavenlies. And so picture that with a light behind it shining down onto earth as a shadow. And that's the earthly tabernacle. Now, if you see a shadow of your husband or wife, you don't go, oh, look how beautiful they are. I love that shadow. Well, I mean, they could look good with a silhouette. I'm not saying that. But you don't love the shadow. You love your wife. You love your husband, the person, the actual one. And the writer wants us to focus on the real thing here now in heaven. Because that's what's atoning for our sins. That's where the real mercy seat is. And why? Because Jesus was able to enter into the presence of God. That's something no human had ever done before. 
Ever. Jesus, fully man, fully God. He walked into the presence of God. And what that means is, is he saw God face to face. Now, I know what everybody's thinking. Isn't Jesus God? So Jesus was looking at himself. No, that's not how it worked, right? Remember, God is a spirit. God is invisible. God is Father, Son, Holy Spirit. God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit manifests himself in Jesus. Okay? Fully man, fully God, the Son of God in the flesh. So Jesus walks in. He's face to face with the living God. Now see, this will be you and I as well. And this is why this author is so passionate. He's going, you don't know what this, you don't know what's going on here. You're chewing on dog food, and I want to give you filet mignon. You want to go into this temple. You're, you're married to this old system. I want to bring you into the very fellowship, the very relationship, the very majestic presence of God. And you could do that through Jesus and Jesus alone. He's the only way. <clears throat> now, moving forward here, moving along. We're, I'm going somewhere. Don't worry. Okay, I just want to get these get someone to build this up so you see where this guy's going here, who I believe is Paul writing this. So he was in the mere copy. He's in the presence of God. Okay. And here's the other thing I wanted to mention. Look at verse 25. Nor was it that he would offer himself often as the high priest enters the holy place year by year with blood that is not his own. Otherwise, he would have had needed to suffer since the foundation of the world. But now, once at the consummation of the ages, he has been manifested to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Otherwise, go to 26, he would have had to sacrifice, or I'm sorry, suffer often since the foundation of the world. So what's he talking about here? The priest used to go, the high priest in the Old Testament every year would have to go in with new sacrifices on the Day of Atonement. And those priests would die, and then there would be a new priest, and he would have to go in year after year after year after year. And I know Animal activists will be like, how could this have ever happened? Oh my gosh, what's going on? You know, crazy, right? But each one of those pieces, each one of those dead animals represented what? The love of God, the gift of God. Here, take this animal, sacrifice it so we can not only be at least, you, you could be my people and we could fellowship from a distance in the old covenant, but this blood goes even deeper. It's a symbol of my son's blood. Pales in comparison to my son's blood. And so when they looked at this and they saw this, they're thinking, but Jesus, is he only did it one time. That's right. That's how valuable his blood was. So don't think that you have to continue to ritualistically, symbolically sacrifice over and over the son of God through whether it be Holy Communion in some, in some religions, the Catholic Church, of course, and Eastern Orthodox and those such things. They believe that the actual body and blood of Christ gets re-sacrificed every week. Now, I'm not doing justice to that position. Don't get me wrong. Uh, it's, I'm not going to go all into it now. There's a lot of, there could be, there's arguments and discussion there for sure. But I'm telling you, that's not biblical. Jesus only died one time. 
and his blood covered it once. He doesn't have to be re-sacrificed. Now, why? Because that would be outside, I believe, of the character of God to have to re-sacrifice his son, his son having to suffer over and over, constantly pouring out his blood over and over and over would be completely polar opposite of what the character of God is about. So it's a one-time sacrifice. And now these are the things that this this guy's been repeating for, for, for chapters. In different ways, shapes, or forms, it's, it's like he's just trying to explain from every angle. He's hitting it directly. He's reverse engineering it. He's using all these sorts of illustrations uh, of the day and all, and all these other things. And so he's, he's trying to tell him now, I love this here, he says that now once at the consummation of the ages, he has been manifested to put away sin. Do you know what the word consummation means? All of it's done. See, this is one thing we miss, that when Jesus died on the cross, rose again, and ascended to heaven, that created the new age. It created and launched the new creation. And not by some weird mystical thing, no, because Jesus, he went into the grave, he came out of the grave, the firstborn of that new creation, And guess what? When he ascended, he sends the Holy Spirit into you. Now makes you new creations. So instead of all Jesus having to be all over, no, you are the you are microcosms of Jesus. So now in this new age, what's your job? To be the temple, not in Jerusalem. I should say not just Jerusalem, but everywhere. What does the temple of God do? It stands there and people come and go, I want to pray. People go, hey, I want forgiveness at the temple. People go, hey, I want to worship at the temple. People say, hey, I want to read the word of God at the temple. I want to fellowship at the temple. See, see how we get all of our traditions. But you are the temple. And when you exude that, people are coming to you. Camila, can you pray for me? I know you go to church. I heard you go to church. Please pray for me. Wow, I never even knew this girl. Right. Or, hey, you know what? Um, You go to that church or, hey, like, obviously, as a pastor, it's super easy for me. You know, I could just say, hey, I'm a pastor. Let me pray for you. Oh, sure. Pastor. No, you know, I'm no, it's any, we're all equal. Right. It's just this. I happen to be the mouth, obviously. Right. Um, And so some of you are the hands. I'm I'm envious. Okay. But, uh, you know, so, so, so the thing here is that this is the end of something and it's the beginning of something else. There's discontinuity, but there's also continuity. And so the consummation of the ages is the the end of the one age, but it's replaced with something completely better and much simpler. Instead of having to follow all these laws, guess what the law of of is in the new covenant? Faith. The law of faith. Believe in your heart. Confess with your mouth. If you believe in your heart, that God raised Jesus from the dead, you'll be saved. It's with your heart you believe, and it's with your mouth you confess. It's with your heart that you believe unto righteousness. Righteousness is a status that means not guilty. That's what the new covenant is about. You're living in a not guilty status when you are in Christ. 
This doesn't mean, you know, hey, I know Jesus. I believe in Jesus. I said the prayer. I'm all good. You know, now I'm just going to go out and have a sin fest like I used to when I was in the world because I got my card. I got my fire insurance. No, that's not how it goes. And it's not you that's going to do it. But if you've come to Christ and you're still out there living in your sin and loving it, that's a problem. See, we should hate our sin. Doesn't mean we don't love it too, because we do. But we should hate the fact that we love it. We should want to look for strides of getting away from that sin. You see, that's what turning from sin is about. Turning towards sin and saying, yeah, I really need to repent is called flirting with sin. (laughs) No flirting. You're married to somebody, Jesus. And that's who we have to focus. Yes, we have to do that. We're not perfect, but he guarantees the grace. It's the new covenant he's going to get us through. But we have to remember we're part of a covenant community. We're Christians. We follow Christ. Okay, so he did this consummation of the ages to do what? To put away sin. And that's what we see in verse 26 as well. What does that mean? Anybody sin this week? You guys sinned this week? Wow. I didn't sin because it says that he put away sin. No, I'm just kidding. What does put away sin mean at the consummate? What it says, it as much as it, wait, no, it's before. Now once, but now once at the uh, consummation of the ages, he's been manifested. So now Jesus is manifested at the end of that age to launch the new creation. And he's been manifested to put away sin. Now, what does that mean? Does it mean that nobody sins? Because we're still in the battlefield. Our general has told us the victory is complete, but we still must occupy and, re- and, and set up the, in every aspect of our life, Christ as Lord. And every aspect of society as well. And I'm not saying try to Christianize everything, but I'm saying take a stand when you see evil being proclaimed in the public square. And it doesn't have to be like, how dare you? That's that's sinful. You know, I'm righteous. I go to church. You need to be. No, but, you know, have have friendly debates with people if they say something that, you know, is completely wrong. You know, but I have something. You know what? You know, I'm a Christian and I'm not sure if you agree with that, but you know what the Bible says about that? And you'll see that quickly your conversation goes from whatever issue you were talking about are you believe the bible you know and that's good because then you can go you can go back and have other you know it gets it away from the you know the topic and down to jesus because when we preach the words of christ through this book which are all the whole entire book there is your power not your clever arguments give them the word of god just give them the word of god simple Jesus, you know, Jesus said that it's destined for men to die once, then face judgment. We see that right here. It's our very next verse. Inasmuch as it is appointed for men to die once and after this comes judgment. So Christ also, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time for salvation without reference to sin to those who eagerly await him. You see, so putting away sin for what Jesus did when he put away sin, he 
destroyed its purpose. What's the purpose of sin? You're right, death. The purpose of sin is death. Death is the tyrant's biggest weapon. Any tyrant throughout history of the world, what was his biggest weapon? Death. I will kill you. <laughs> or, or whatever, right? And that's why we don't, you know, we, we had to do that. And so think about that on the, on the highest level. Jesus took away the sting of death. He defeated it. And we talk a lot about this all the time, about how the believer is going to be in the presence of God. We had a really great, you know, by the way, you should come on Wednesdays because we had a great talk about this whole thing. And that's why Wednesday Bible studies are phenomenal. I'm not just trying to give a commercial, but, you know, we talked about that. Like, what happens after you? We all got to talk, and, and of course, I had to correct everybody and, you know, get everybody on the right track. Purgatory and all this other stuff. No, I'm just kidding. No, but people actually think that, well, I'm going to die, and then I'm going to go off, you know, into some sort of, uh, I don't know, holding place for a while, get myself good with God. That doesn't, that's not it. I'll talk about that in a second. I want to, I want to go back here, put away sin, destroy its purpose, disarm it, take away its force and power. And in the scriptures, it's the law of sin has been destroyed. The law of sin. So sin no longer has its effect. It is bound right now. And you and I have the ability to overcome sin in our life. When we were in the world, we can only overcome sin with other sins, right? Well, hey, listen, I know I'm doing really, you know, I'm, I'm really uh, doing bad. I've been drinking, you know, a bottle of vodka every day. So I'm, I'm going to get rid of that and start, you know, doing heroin you know, or something less toxic to my liver or whatever we say, whatever we justify. We, we take our sin and we swap it around. But with Jesus, he kills the sin in us, right? And now we get this power, this power to overcome it because of the Holy Spirit inside of us. And don't get me wrong, we quench the spirit because we love our sin. We go here, we go there. And God forgives us. He wipes us off. He gives us his grace. He does all those things. But the sin is not something that God is not condoning that. It's because you're in that covenant. You're covered by his blood. So it's destined here. Let me, let me go back to this judgment because this is where the whole entire passage is heading. This encounter they, that they want him to have, they want these people to have with Christ. And so you got to pull back the lens a little bit because what he's saying here in 27 and 28, <clears throat> it says, Inasmuch as it is appointed for men to die once and after this comes judgment, so Christ also, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time for salvation without reference to sin, to those who eagerly await him. So let me give you the picture. <clears throat> so on the Day of Atonement is what this is all about, right? We, we, we were talking about the Day of Atonement in the tabernacle. We, we talked about that for three weeks. The priest, the high priest, would go in once a year to the Holy of Holies. There's two parts to the tabernacle. He would go to the back, back one. There's the Ark of the Covenant, the mercy seat, the cherubim, and he would pour the blood there. Now we talk about this like this is just, ah, yeah, go ahead in there. But this was something that was anticipated all year. You know, the priest would, he, he would be like, you know, your family's up this year. 
<laughs> you know, well, that would be for the service, you know, and they would be like, what? Uh, I got to be in the temple? You know, the first part of the temple and the outside of court. And they would, they would be like, man, they would be terrified. Because when it comes up next year, they got to jump in. How much more the high priest who's got to go into the place where only he's allowed to go? And everybody all year praying. Making sure they're good. The high priest would say, what are you doing? You know, stop being so sinful. Start obeying the law. I got to go in there and atone. You know, like what if God strikes me dead? Because that's what they were afraid of. What if this high priest went in there and he did something wrong? Remember, you know, Aaron's sons offered strange fire, put those coals in the incense. and God didn't like it. And for some reason, they wiped them right out. Oh, he wiped his holiness right out. So, so that high priest would then, all year, people would be waiting, you know, and anticipate, praying. You know, then, the, then the day would come. And that was supposed to be a somber day. No work, nothing. And the whole camp of Israel would, would camp outside the tabernacle. And the high priest would go in, uh, you know, and he would do all his rituals, and he would pour it out. And they're waiting, and they're waiting, and they're waiting. And then when he walks out and comes back again, what do they do? They rejoice. They, now, they had to be a somber day, but God did want them to party, so he gave the Feast of the Boots and the Feast of Tabernacles right after that as a celebration of his deliverance and their forgiveness. And when that priest would come out, they would praise the Lord and they would celebrate and thank God for doing what he said he would do. Do you see the picture He's trying to say, look, you don't have to be. Jesus is going to come back out. Yes, because they were like, well, he's our high priest. We know he went into the holy tabernacle in heaven. When's he coming back? Because that has to happen. That's what priests do. They make atonement and then they return. Right. And celebrate like a, like a king. He'll go out and defeat his enemy and he'll come back and return with all the booty and all the gold and all the thing, And they would give it away. They would have a big royal party, right? And so <clears throat> these people were celebrating, but what's going on here is they're celebrating because he returned. And that's what the writer is trying to show us here. Just as if, or just like the high priest came out, now Jesus as well is going to come back. Now, <clears throat> this right here he's saying, okay, he's going to come back, but to who? To those who are eagerly waiting for him. And that means they know him. They were eagerly waiting for him to return. And I believe that that is in our, in Christianity today, because of a misunderstanding and misconception of what it means when Jesus says he's going to return. I believe we have all sorts of wacky ideas on what really is the second coming of Christ and what really is this return. Because if he doesn't return, our encounter with him now is false. We're having an encounter with the risen Christ. The Bible says this, that this risen Christ, Jesus is going to return. But if we don't believe that, we don't have that encounter with him when he returns, we never had it in the first place when we were here because you're not going to eagerly wait for somebody that you know is coming to judge you. 
And so when you pass from this world to the next, well, I, I hate saying that. When you pass into the presence of Christ, you know, into the heavenly realm, you're going to be with him. You're, everything, you know, all, all that's going to come through, but the sin is going to be, you're, no sin at all. Well, you are eagerly waiting. But those that don't know are going to be like running from God. Praying the rocks and the, and the mountains fall on them. You see, if we don't know Christ here and now, don't think you're going to, like I was saying before, this, uh, this purgatory idea, this karma idea. Well, I'm going to come back. I know I messed up this life, but I'm going to come back. Yeah, I may come back as, you know, a pigeon, but I'm going to make be a good pigeon. So then I'll come back as a, an eagle. I want to be an eagle. That's my favorite bird. Well, I like owls. I'll be an owl. Right? And then, no, this is what, this is the worldview which allows people to sin and not, well, they feel the guilt about it, but to justify that sin. But you got to know there is no waiting room. Okay? A lot of that comes out of scriptures about our works being burned up, works that were made of wood and stubble will be burned, works that are built on, on a better fountain, works of gold, and, you know, they're going to get purified through the fire, and whatever doesn't get purified is going to be burnt away. That's true. That just means that's not rewards. Just means the stuff you do for the Lord is going to last. The stuff you do in the power of the Holy Spirit for the Lord, that's going to last. The stuff that you do that way, that's going to be wooden stubble. <clears throat> if you gave a million dollars to somebody and you didn't really mean it and you did it because you wanted a brick on some building, that's probably going to burn on stubble and wood, right? But if you did it with the right heart and you did it because of love or whatever, whatever you were called to do it, then that would be gold. See, the same action, but it's the intent of the heart. And so that's where we get that whole purgatory thing. This, there is no, it's, the, it's man is, is here and then judgment. Now, I don't like the word judgment. <laughs> Does anybody like the word judgment? You see, the word judgment, it gets a bad rap and gives God a bad rap because God is judge and God is going to put, you know, judge the world in righteousness. And he is. But what type of picture does that give you of God when you hear it the way I said it, especially with my mean voice? Like God is going to, he's, he's out to get you, you know, God so hated the world that he killed his only son. You know, so that whoever believes in him will have everlasting life. But it's only that's the wrong. That's sort of the mentality that we have here. No, that's not the case. God so loved the world. He gave his only son. And so this in this this whole, I guess you could say, second coming, um, I guess, misconception is about that's one of the things, because if I'm able to sort of float around in purgatory or come back like this, is the second coming really going to be that important to me? See, the second coming for me is when Christ comes back to judge the world in righteousness, but that judgment is not him going, that judgment means he's making things right. God is a God of, he's not of judgment, but he's doing the judgment to straighten it out, not to crush. His character prevents him from just letting sin go by. 
His character can't just say, all right, I'm not going to judge that. No, it's judging is making it right. That's why believers will have a judgment. Look at some of these um, uh, scriptures here. It says, I I just want to uh, give you that here. If I could find it, because I just jumped all over the place. Okay, so this is Romans 14.10. But you, why do you judge your brother? He's talking to Christians. Or you again, why do you regard your brother with contempt? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. And what this means is, is that God's not going to say, okay, so you had this fight with your brother, and now I'm going to really you know, beat you up. No, he's going to make that situation right at the end. All things are going to be made right by God at his judgment. Yes, and that does include disposing of evil, disposing of wickedness. But also, we're going to give an account for every word that we ever speak. This isn't some, that's not words of like a stage play. Like God's going to go, oh, okay, oh, yeah, here comes Pat. You know, wink his eye, he's saved, no problem. All right, Pat, come on up, you know. You're going to be judged now, but I know you love Jesus, so you're fine. No, that's not it. You're going to, I believe, we're going to fall to our face and tremble like, they, like most people do in the Bible when they see God or the angel of the Lord. And he's going to, like he did, I believe, to Jeremiah, um, I'm sorry, Ezekiel. And Ezekiel fell and the spirit just stood him back up because he was so afraid. And we're going to stand before a loving God, like a loving father. And I believe we are going to change. I, I believe, again, I, I shouldn't speculate up here too much, huh? It's not really good practice in preaching. But from what we see in Scripture, it's going to be delightful. It's going to be, you know, bliss and all those other things. But don't discount the fact that our God is righteous and you and him are going to have an encounter at that second coming. You're going to have that encounter one-on-one. How? I don't know. And that's what they wanted him to know. But that when that encounter comes, for those that don't know Christ, it's that their blood that has to pay for their sin. But that encounter that comes with those that know Christ, there's no record of sin. There's no against you. It's going to be a loving, it's going to be a fatherly, relational, I believe, making right. Now again, that's from exegeting the word and looking at the character of God. Don't take my word for it. Do your own research. But that's what I believe uh, the scriptures are teaching. So we see the second coming. I don't know if I'm going off here, but you're probably saying, well, where does the Bible talk about it? I'll give you two passages to look at. First one is First uh, Corinthians 15. And this is verse uh, 23 talking about how the dead will be raised. Each in his own order, Christ the first fruits, after that, those who are at his coming. Then comes the end, and he hands over the kingdom of God and the Father. And when he has abolished all rule and authority and power, he must reign until he's put all his enemies under the feet, under his feet. The last enemy that will be abolished is death. So we see a picture here at the end of this age, okay. Not, not the old age is gone. The new creation now. Now we're just talking about age as a period of time. We don't know when Christ is going to return. Stay away from the prophecy websites. Stay away from the newspaper exegesis if you want my advice. 
Okay, we have no idea when he's going to come, but we do know that when he comes, he's coming once. He's not coming twice. He's not coming once to rapture people out and then going away for seven years or 20 years or however long. There's so many different views. And then coming back again, there's one. And if you go to that rapture passage too, you see a very good parallel with 1 Corinthians 15 uh, of this... uh, um, what's going to happen at that time? We see in 1 Corinthians 15, I'm giving you guys a lot of numbers now. I should have done this. You're supposed to do this in the beginning. And so that way you lose people in the beginning and then catch them at the end. So I'm losing you guys at the end since I had you in the beginning. 1 Corinthians 15, 50, it says that, I tell you, it's a mystery. We're not all going to sleep, but we're all going to be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, the last trumpet, it will sound, and the, day, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. Now parallel that with the first uh, Thessalonians 4, we see again in verse 16, the Lord will descend from heaven <clears throat> with the voice of an archangel, with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Again, same parallel language. Same uh, 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 event that they're talking about. And then the controversial metaphorical passage that has taken and created a whole entire, not only eschatology called dispensationalism, but that eschatology then turned into a hermeneutic, which means how do you translate the scripture? So you first find a way to translate the scripture, and then out of that comes your eschatology. Well, with dispensationalism about in 1850, something, whatever it came, they started with the eschatology. And it's, in my opinion, went off trying to fit the theology into that. Now, if you're a dispensationalist, that's fine. I don't want to scare you away from here. I have great friends that are dispensationalists. I believe they're in within orthodoxy. I don't think it's heretical. Okay, all those other things. All the, you know, however, I could just make up for what I just said. I mean it. Okay, but I do believe it's an incorrect view. So it's here it is. Then we who are alive and we remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so they shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort each other with these words. Again, a trumpet blast. We we see the parallel there. But what what we're missing here is the, again, the context. This is a very familiar metaphorical phrase. That was used in a lots of different lots of different ways. It was used most of the time for a king that was coming into battle. I'm sorry, coming home from battle. And the whole entire, well, country, city, capital, wherever he was, would there'd be people out there looking, they would sign, they'd light the torches, and then they would all come out and meet him and ex- escort him back to his kingdom. But since Jesus left in a cloud. He's not out in outer space. Paul is tying in that metaphor with Jesus. Okay, He is our returning king, coming with the kingdom. You know, let, let your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We see Revelation 22 with that perfect holy of holies, Jerusalem coming down, making itself one with the earth. And so when you see all this metaphorical language uh, you know, of the day, and then you look at it here, what he's saying is, is we're going, when the Lord returns, we are going to welcome him. We are going to meet him rejoicing and escorting him back to his kingdom. 
Now that's going to happen at the second coming. And then there's going to be the judgment. And then Satan's going to be bound and throw, I'm sorry, then Satan's going to be cast into the lake of fire. And then the new heavens and the new earth are going to be there. So this, I know I went off a little bit uh, on that, on the end with the second coming into thing, but this is the, the passage. The theme of this passage really is this writer telling them that just like the high priest, you're, you're not missing out on anything is what he's telling them. You think you are. But everything the high priest was and everything the sacrificial system was, Jesus is one gazillion times more. You're not going to see the high priest walk out of a temple that's only going to cover our sins for a year. Your high priest is returning physically with his kingdom. And he's going to save us forever. And we are going to be one with him. And he is God. And so how do we act? What do we do? Well, first of all, I want to highly, highly, highly encourage you to think about this right now. Think about this. You're going to live your life. Now, let me just ask it as a question. Do you see the difference between living for Christ with the mentality that he is going to come back one time? And rescue, and obviously he's going to judge the world and then the new heavens and the new earth. And you're going to see everything that you've done for the Lord. You are going to see that your labor was not in vain. And that it was actually, God used it as a part of this. I mean, that already gives me the goosebumps because I'm like, great, everything I'm doing. And it doesn't matter if you're some, you know, you're not going to be out there just doing ministry. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about where your calling in life is. Right? So that is all going to count. Now that's the one view. And then the other view is that God is going to take this earth. He's going to destroy it. And we're going to get taken out of here. And we're going to go up and live in a disembodied uh, spirit in heaven. Now that just doesn't jive with me. I don't see it as, I don't see it as uh, um, anything in Judaism that thinks anything like that. And of course, Christians were Jews in the beginning. I see nothing in early Christianity about that. We see just the opposite. We see a bunch of people going around trying to say that Jesus is king and Caesar's not. You don't see heaven anywhere in Acts, not even one verse. You see, you you hear a lot about kingship and kingdom. And so this book, way do you get to chapter 12? And 13, because this is all, this is where the author's going. What I just gave you today is a preview because he builds up to this and then it just kind of explodes on the scene. Then he just says, hey, we are at that foot of the hill with the real Mount Zion. We're, we are there now. We just have to stay faithful and walk by faith. Walk by faith. Know that what you're doing matters. Know that what you're doing we talked about it today in Sunday, in Sunday Bible study. One person you can affect in this world. One. And you could have done all these accomplishments. You could have done all these things. But it could be one or two words you say to one person that when you get before the Lord and he says, well done, good and faithful servant. And you go, oh, the, the, the business I built, Lord, and gave all the money to uh, ministries. Like, yeah, yeah, that, that was good. 
uh, well, what about Lord the Church? I was there every week. I start. I did. I did. Um, you know, all, I was an usher. I was a greeter because Pat never stopped talking about it. I just ended up folding and doing it. it goes, he's going great. That, but that's not why I sent you there. Well, what about all my kids? Yeah, did a great job. But remember that one person, and he'll show you. And that could be the whole reason you're here. That's exciting, right? For some, it's like no. For others, it's like worth it. And you know why? Because that's Jesus' mentality. That was him. He would have done that. If it was just you, he would have died for you. And you, how can you say that, Pat? Because of who he is. He's love. And he would have laid his life down. And he did. He did. What are you doing with that information? See, information is one thing. That produces, well, yeah, that, I guess it could produce knowledge. Some of you here have information about Jesus. Some of you here have knowledge about Jesus. But how many of you have had that encounter with Christ? Because that's what he wants. And I'm not trying to conjure up some emotion in you to have some born-again experience. God's got to do it. But you'll know. Because the Holy Spirit will be in you. You'll feel it. You'll know. It may be like, wow, I want to live for the Lord. I'm ready. Pat, oh my gosh, I had this change. Or it may go slow. I don't know. Don't worry about that. Just keep your eyes focused on him. Father, thank you for this message. Thank you for uh, being able to articulate this uh, chapter. And I pray that it landed on hearts that were plowed and ready, Lord. Uh, please be with us, God, as we finish this worship service. Help us, God. <clears throat> to focus on that day when we will see you. Let us live with that hope, knowing our labor is not in vain. In Jesus' name, amen.